This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Natalie Kogan. Natalie is an author, speaker, and the founder of Happier, a training organization. Her work has been featured in hundreds of media outlets, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, TEDx Boston, and Dr. Oz. It sounds true. Natalie Kogan has written a new book called Happier Now, How to Stop Chasing Perfection and Embrace Everyday Moments, Even the Difficult Ones. In her debut book, Happier Now, she teaches readers how to stop searching for some elusive big happy in the future and start finding more joy in everyday moments. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Natalie and I spoke about how she redefined happiness, not as a state of ultimate positivity devoid of difficult emotions, but as a skill we can all develop. We talked about the health benefits of practicing gratitude and how we can even practice gratitude when we feel terrible and it doesn't seem genuine. We talked about the myth of I'll be happy when, and how knowing how our brains work can actually help us deconstruct this myth. Together, we also did a five-minute happiness workout, and we explored how rest and creative activities can actually end up making us more productive. And we talked about the great gift we give each other by being honest about our true emotional state. Here's my conversation on being happier now with Natalie Kogan. Natalie, one of the things that really struck me about your new book, Happier Now, is how much you reveal about yourself and your background coming to the United States with your mom and dad as a family of emigrating Russian Jews. And in the very beginning of the book, you write, this book in its entirety is my letter of gratitude and love for you, my parents. And it touched me so much to feel how much gratitude and love you feel for your parents. And I wanted to start on that note and for you to tell me a little bit about how that love and gratitude for your parents actually became the source of the book Happier Now. Mm, What a wonderful question. Thank you for starting there. Um, You know, my, uh, I'm an only child obviously. And we've always had a very, you know, close family, but immigrating as refugees, the way we did at 13, it was, to this day remains the most formative experience of my life, you know, to go through something so difficult and so traumatic together. It's, um, I think there's only two outcomes afterwards. And I think it's either fear or love. And I chose love. And so did my parents, you know, we left Russia with nothing. We had six suitcases and a few hundred dollars and we lived in refugee camps. And when we came here, we lived in the projects and on welfare, we had a really rough start. And, you know, throughout all of it, my parents, I I can only imagine how much they worried and how much fear they had. And, you know, I have a daughter right now, Mia, who is the same age I was then. And I am the age my parents were then. And I cannot imagine undertaking that journey and bringing us to a new place we didn't know if we would get here. And so to me, I just, uh, it's not just that my gratitude for them to bring me here, but it's for their beings. And in all that struggle, they had a pretty difficult life in Russia. Jews face a lot of persecution. 
immigration, coming here, starting their careers over at 40, my parents have always, always, always had hope. And they always try to find some moment for all of us to be okay, even when we were in the dire you know, situation. And the story I tell in the book is when we were in Vienna in a refugee settlement you know, with no money, no idea where we're, when we would get to the United States, my father, who is a PhD physicist, who is this brilliant man, my hero in life, at night he got this gig making a few dollars unloading crates at a local market just to make a little bit of money. And so he would do that all night. And one morning he came back. My mom and I were just waking up. We shared this tiny little room. And he came in. He was all dirty and smelly. But he said, girls, come on, get up. We're going to go see the Vienna Opera House. They have free tours today. And uh, my reaction to this was to say, you're absolutely crazy. We have no money. We are in this horrible place. We have no idea when we'll get to America. And you want to go sightseeing? And I'll never forget it. My dad looked at me and my mom was already getting up to get dressed because she was like, yes, let's go. And they looked at me and my dad said, you're absolutely right. Life is really, really bad right now. It's awful, but we have a choice and we can either sit here and just wallow in the struggle or we can take this opportunity to go do something together as a family, see something beautiful, enjoy the city. It doesn't cost any money. So let's go. And at the time, I I still thought it was crazy and I went along and I made sure he knew and my mom knew I disagreed with this decision because my idea was always that if there's something wrong in your life, you own the struggle. You don't for a moment enjoy any little moment. But I tell that story because to me, that is something that my parents both embody so much. And that's, that's the source of my gratitude for them. Yes, the journey to bring me here and the risks and the hardship, absolutely. But it's that they've always had hope and they shared that with me and that there was always this sparkle. And, uh, you know, when I was younger, I didn't appreciate it. But as I've gone on my journey, you know, in writing this book and thinking about it, I realized just what a gift they've given me. Tell our listeners a little bit about how you went from being this negative teenager, if you will, questioning (laughs) why you were going sightseeing, to now being, you know, the queen of happy and taking (laughs) on a gratitude experiment at a certain point in your life. Yeah, it's, uh, I think as most of us, it definitely was not a simple journey or one that I expected. I can tell you that if you had told me 10 years ago, that I would be founding a company called Happier or that I would say my life's mission is to help people be happier or that I would be writing a book called Happier Now, I would laugh you out of the room. It was just the last thing I expected because, you know, um, they said there's a saying about Russians and uh, it says Russians are good at three things, suffering, making others suffer and complaining about suffering. And it would be funny if it wasn't so true. Suffering is something very deeply rooted in the traditions I come from and my family. You know, it's um, it's something you bond over. And so it was something that I was very rooted to. And then you add on top this very difficult refugee experience. You know, we landed in America. I was in eighth grade. I hardly spoke English. Everyone made fun of me. You know, I went from being a star student to putting being in remedial classes. I was felt so much doubt and fear and unhappiness. And uh, my solution was to find happiness through achievements. That's the, that's the thing I came up with because whenever I achieved anything, like I got a good grade or I learned to speak English well enough, or I got into a top college, I would feel really good. And my parents would feel really good. It was like this happiness bubble. And I thought, okay, I got it. I'll just, I'll blow a lot of these achievement happiness bubbles. And uh, you know, I say that I live my life and on this with this I'll be happy when mantra, you know, I just kept setting these I'll be happy when I get into a great college, I'll be happy when I graduate at the top, get a great job, you know, marry a lovely person, have a child, live in New York. And every time it happened, I had this amazing moment of happiness. And I would always share it with my parents, because really, we would go through it together. And then it would just always pop, right? It would just always go away. And I didn't know why. I just had to chase the next achievement. And after about two decades of doing this, I hit a wall, Tammy. I, um, I, it was burnout, but it was worse. I was hardly functioning at my job. I was not being a very good wife or mother. Everything was very 
dark and bleak for me. And uh, I stumbled, luckily, stumbled across research on gratitude. And, you know, my father is a scientist, but uh, in Russia, to think that anyone studies emotions or happiness, like that would be absurd. So I read all this research about the benefits of practicing gratitude, of how it doesn't just improve our mood, but also our health and sleep and relationships. And to be honest, my first reaction was, this is so weird and it's too simplistic and it's never going to work for someone as complicated as me. You know, I just rejected it because as you know, you know, the story we tell ourselves about ourselves is very firm. So I had the story about myself that this wasn't going to work, but I was desperate and desperation makes you try things. So I said, fine, I'm going to try this gratitude experiment for 30 days. I'm going to write down three good things about my day. I'm going to have one kind, grateful interaction with another human being. I'm going to do this for 30 days. It's definitely not going to work. And then I can feel very smug and justified in my unhappiness. And, you know, the punchline we know, because after about two weeks, um, you know, it's not that I became some happy-go-lucky person. I'm still not a happy-go-lucky person. In fact, that's one of the things I've redefined about what it truly means to be happier. But I was suddenly, for the first time in my life, able to find joy in those little everyday moments that until that point, I just used as stepping stones on the way to chasing these big goals. I mean, really little moments, like my daughter greeting me enthusiastically when I came home or, you know, the way the sunshine was falling on the tulips that were on the couch or the fact that my husband texted me to say he missed me. Like these little, little moments, they had always been there. But I had never paused to truly experience the joy and the love and the kindness of them. And uh, the, the the incident that really shifted everything of my understanding of, wow, this is working, was we were at a restaurant with my daughter and my husband, a little place near our house, and I saw a couple next to us. It just appeared they were new. They were sort of puzzled looking at the menu, and I leaned over, and I made some suggestions to them, and then I saw the chef back there. I went to say hi to him, and I came back, and my husband, Avi, was looking at me as if I had two heads, and I said, what? He said, I can't believe this, and I said, what do you mean? He said, you're here with us. You're present in every interaction. You're enjoying these little moments. And that was, you know, often what other people reflect on us makes it clear. But that was a turning moment for me to realize that practicing gratitude was absolutely shifting the fabric of my life because now I could experience joy in these little moments and doing that actually helped me deal with the difficult moments. Now, you said something interesting, Natalie. You said, I'm not a happy-go-lucky person. Mm. And in fact, uh, I've had to redefine happiness in order to mm. be the host of Happier.com and write a book like Happier Now. So how have you redefined happiness? Yeah, that's a great question, because I'll tell you what I used to think happiness was like, and I encounter, you know, I do a lot of speaking all around the country, and we have a big community and happier, and I hear this from people that we often define happiness as something, um, first of all, as a state of being. So we, if you do X, Y, Z, then, right, I'll be happy when. So you do certain things, then you earn the right to be happy. It's a state of being, and it's void of all negative emotions, that it's Happiness is just about positive emotions. You know, we live in this world that's constantly saying, you know, turn that frown upside down, you know, cheer up, just focus on the positive. And so I think we, most of us used to think of happiness as a state of positivity. And that's what I used to think of it. And so I was never able to just feel good all the time. So I thought I was failing at happiness. I was failing at life. I was failing at my American dream of becoming happy because I wasn't feeling good all the time. And, oh, I worked so hard to try and not feel any of what we call negative emotions, you know, and they were there. They were always there. I started collecting them when we immigrated and we all encounter them in the course of our lives, but I never allowed myself to truly feel any anxiety or sadness or regret or doubt because I was so afraid that that would mean I would get stuck feeling those feelings forever and I would fail at having a good life. And I just, you know, first I try to escape those feelings with achievements. And then to be honest, when I found it happier and began practicing gratitude, sometimes I try to use gratitude as a bandaid. So I feel some difficult emotion and I would just like try to overdo it at gratitude. Because again, I used to think that happiness is just a state of positive emotions. And what happened with me is I kind of had to go on this 
uh, new journey, even uh, it was a few years ago, as I was running happier and, you know, teaching gratitude to so many people, I had to go and on this journey to learn that happiness isn't void of difficult or negative emotions, that it's not about making our lives or ourselves perfect. We can feel good all the time. We human beings are not meant to feel good all the time. And instead that happiness comes genuine, like deep rooted happiness comes from embracing our lives as they are embracing ourselves as we are, which means that sometimes we feel sad and sometimes we feel joyful and without judgment or recrimination to redefine what it truly means to have well-being or happiness as, first of all, not just a feeling, but a skill. It's something, I say that happiness isn't something you do, it's something you, isn't something you feel, it's something you do. So there's actions, and that's what I write about in my book, these five happier skills of acceptance and gratitude and kindness and the sense of meaning and self-care, but that it's also redefining it as not something that you just feel positive all the time. And it's about embracing yourself and your life with all the moments and learning how to be able to live fully in all the moments, the good and the bad, and to be in agreement with your life instead of having to fight with it. And that's how I've redefined what it means to truly be happier. And this is why I wrote this book is to offer that redefinition to folks out there, because I cannot tell you how many times a day I encounter people in the happier community who tell me, well, I just don't think I can ever feel happy. And I say, why? And they say, well, because I feel stressed a lot. And I'm just this negative person, I guess. And so we have to, you know, that's the journey I went on is to understand that when you feel sadness or stress or regret, it doesn't mean you're failing at being happy. It just means you have to redefine of what it means. And it's really not about feeling positive all the time. I notice I feel so happy when I hear you talk about not having to feel positive all the time to be happy. Yes. So can I just say something? What you just said, this, do you know how many people have given, have gotten up in the middle of my talks and gone up and given me a hug with tears in their eyes because I gave them permission to just exhale, to not have to struggle all the time, to not feel something bad. And I devote so much of my book, not just talking about this, but offering these little practices that I've learned over the years that come from psychology and sociology and yoga and Buddhism, just to these practices to, so that we can learn to be okay with not being okay. Now, you, you mentioned something interesting, and I really want to go into this, Natalie, about how it's possible that you can use something like gratitude to be a cover or a bandage, I think, is the word you used. It's the word you mm -hmm. use in mm -hmm. the book to cover over how we're actually feeling. And I think this gets mm -hmm. into something that can mm -hmm. be a little tricky for people. So when we think about the practice of gratitude, it's obvious gratitude is good for our health. It, you know, releases dopamine when we're grateful. All these great things happen. Mm -hmm. And at mm -hmm. the same time, I know in my own life, if I force myself to be mm -hmm. grateful mm -hmm. when it's not natural to me, I feel, mm -hmm. I feel a little bit like I'm, you know, putting uh, sugar over shit, just to use uh, mm -hmm. some very plain language. There's something about it that doesn't mm -hmm. quite feel right. So how do we practice mm -hmm. gratitude when it's not feeling true to us? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, the incident that I shared in Vienna in the refugee camp with my father and my mom, um, this is exactly what I felt. So I didn't know the word gratitude. That wasn't the language I was using. But what my dad was using and that was doing in that moment, he was actually practicing gratitude. So he, he was focusing on something that we could appreciate, you know, being together, doing something nice together amidst this overwhelming degree of suck that we were in. And I felt that was wrong because I felt that you cannot be grateful when life sucks, that it's like cheating on reality. That's the term I've had with me for, I, I think I say this in the book, that I felt that to be grateful for something when not everything is okay is like cheating, is like covering it up. And what I've had to really learn about gratitude is that it doesn't ask us to pretend that things are good or to turn a negative into a positive. Gratitude is more a practice of within any moment, 
to find something, however small, that we can appreciate. And one of my favorite ways to think about it was um, David Stonald Roth, who is, you know, uh, I know you guys have published some of his stuff. Um, he's amazing. You know, he's a monk who has dedicated his life to sharing gratitude. And uh, he said something in an interview once that stuck with me. He said, can you be grateful for everything? No. You cannot be grateful for pain or for a loved one suffering or when, you know, when you are sick you can't, or for war or conflict. You cannot be grateful for everything. But can you find something to be grateful for in every moment? Yes. And I think that's the perspective shift. So to me, like what you're saying, you know, sometimes you just you're in a place where you're not feeling very grateful. And the first thing I would say is, you know, the first happier skill that I talk about is acceptance. So accept that right now you're not feeling very grateful and that is okay. That is part of being human. But then after you give yourself that permission, so you're not sitting there and beating yourself up, oh, you're so ungrateful, which again, something we do. But once you give yourself a little bit of that space to realize, okay, this is how I feel, it's okay. To me, the practice of gratitude is to connect to something and it may require a little bit of digging that in this moment, it doesn't have to be joyful. This is the other thing. We, sometimes we are grateful in very difficult moments for something that isn't joyful. The example I always um, think about, my grandmother passed away um, last year. And I grew up very, very close with my grandparents. My grandpa is 93. He's still alive. They came over with us. And she passed away. And it was this horrible, horrible thing for all of us, for my mom. We were so sad. And I remember at my mom's house, everyone came over after the cemetery. My cousins were there, the family, and I just was filled with so much gratitude. And I was, it felt weird to me because like, what am I grateful that my grandmother died? No, I wasn't grateful for that. It doesn't mean I didn't feel sad. Gratitude didn't mean that I didn't feel pain. It's just in that moment, I could also find appreciation for being part of this family that was coming together. I could also find appreciation for the memories that we all had of her. And that was really a powerful reminder that, again, gratitude is not this bandage that's going to cover all the other feelings. It's, I think of it as a lifeline we can hang on to, particularly when things are difficult, when we find something within the difficult that we still truly can appreciate. Now, you also mentioned a myth that many people have about happiness, which is, I'll be happy when. And I do think that this is something, maybe we don't fully admit it to ourselves, but most of us have some notion that we'll be happy when something or other changes in our life. Mm -hmm. You know, when Mm -hmm. we finish Mm -hmm. decorating this part of our house or, you know, when our child grows up and et cetera. I don't know. Uh, Everybody Mm -hmm. has their own, Mm -hmm. I'll be happy when I make this much money. How do you Mm -hmm. help people see through that myth? Yeah, it's a, you know, this is a hard one, right? Because of what you said, that sometimes we are not aware that we're hanging our well-being and our happiness on conditions outside of us. And I'll tell you, um, it's not like I was aware that this is what I was doing as I was doing it. So it's not that I had that awareness. It's just that was the path I was thinking about. And it's not an easy shift to make. I'll tell you a couple um uh, things that help. So for me, one of the one of the powers. So I'm a daughter of a scientist, and I grew up with this great respect for science. So looking, and you know, I put a lot of research into this book. So just understanding how our brain works and why I'll be happy when doesn't work has been really helpful. And I usually share that with folks. And that is that um, the the curse and the blessing of the human brain is that it's very adaptable and it's adaptive. So. We get used to things uh, pretty quickly, good and bad things. And so it's not that we are wrong to think that when I get a better job or make more money or, you know, write a best-selling book, it's not that we're wrong to think that we'll be happy. We actually will be happy for a short amount of time, but then our brain gets used to it because our brain, that is what it is meant to do. It's trying to help us survive. So we adapt to change. And once we get used to that milestone that we thought would make us so happy, our brain, it becomes, I call it the curse of the moving baseline. Our brain simply now looks at it as the new normal. 
And the brain has adapted. So it's not something we did wrong. It's just the brain doing its most natural activity of adapting to change. And I can tell you when I learned this science and when I share it with people, it creates a shift because I think that we have to understand, you know, the, the thing I don't want to say is, oh, you're doing life wrong. If you're doing, I'll be happy when. It, it's not that you're wrong. It's that we're not aware of how our brain functions. The other piece from just the research is that most of us have what psychologists call a natural negativity bias. And so our brain is more sensitive to negative, negative stimuli. It's constantly actually looking out for the negative in our environment because negative stimuli indicate danger and the brain is trying to protect us. What does that mean? It means that you may think that that new job is going to make you so happy and you work really hard and you get the new job. And it's fantastic for a while. And then the negativity bias kicks in. And all of a sudden you start to notice, oh, this colleague is annoying and my commute is frustrating and oh, my boss isn't as amazing as I thought. And you, your brain, again, it's just doing its thing. It's frustrating, but it's doing its thing. And so this dream job that you had in your mind when that was an aspirational goal now becomes the new normal. So your brain has A, adapted, and your negativity bias has kicked in, and it's finding all these things that are imperfect. And I share all this research because for me and for many people I speak with, that's helpful just to understand why I'll be happy when doesn't work, why these goals and achievements don't bring us lasting joy. But the other thing I would say is um, I do this exercise actually uh, in my talks, and it's not a very pleasant exercise, I have to say, but it's very powerful. And that is I ask people to think back to when there was something that they thought would just really make them so happy. Everything we just talked about, you know, kid gets into a top college, you get a better job where you lose X pounds or gain X pounds. And I ask them to think of how they felt when they were working towards that goal when they achieved it, and how did they feel about it a few months after? Did that erase all negative feelings? And I think when we reflect on these past moments in our lives, we pretty quickly gain the awareness that we're just more complex than that, that this one thing that we may think may make us so happy can't, you know, we can't battle our negativity bias or adaptive brain. And also, even if that thing is amazing, we're complex human beings and other things are going on. And so when I do that exercise, again, it's not necessarily the most uplifting, but it's very um, informative and revealing to us. And I remind myself of this, by the way, I have to do these practices still. You know, I get myself in this mindset. Sometimes I catch myself, oh my God, only when my book comes out and so many people buy it, it'll be amazing. And I, I have to do this practice of really understanding that I'm doing this, I'll be happy when. So it's an ongoing practice, but those are some of the things I share to really help us all, you know, have the awareness of why that doesn't work. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, you also mentioned, because I think this is part of your redefinition of happiness that's important, that it's a skill. And I think that in and of itself, happiness as a skill, is something that probably a lot of people haven't considered. I think there's still this idea that Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, the sun came out, the weather was nice, the breeze felt good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was a miracle. I felt happy. Everything was perfect. (laughs) You know, I didn't do anything. It was just there was some perfect moment that happened. And then, of course, it left. But I was happy for a few seconds there. Yeah. That's very different than thinking of this as a a skill, like making a good meal or, you know, building a home or something. Yeah, it's, um, I have to tell you, it's been so interesting when I started to use that term, that happiness isn't something you feel, it's something you do. I'll tell you that there's 
two very different reactions that I get immediately when I say that. And they're very different. The first, I just see this joyful relief when some people recognize that, oh, I don't have to wait for the perfect circumstances. Wow, this is something that I can start practicing. Awesome. And it gives this relief because it removes this dependence of our own happiness on outside conditions or circumstances. And so some people react with this hopeful excitement. And on the other hand, some people, the initial reaction is, ugh, I have to work at this? Uh-uh. I don't want to work at happiness. I really, you know, I, I want that perfect moment. And both are completely understandable. I've had them both. They're absolutely okay. But I think that thinking about happiness as a skill, just like any other skill that you can improve through practice, you can start wherever you are today. Some of us are better at it than others, just like some of us are better cooks than others. Some of us are better at painting than others. You can start wherever you are. You don't have to be of a certain sex, live in a certain place, have a certain personality. I think for me, when I had that breakthrough for myself, it was huge. And I, I'll tell you that not to sound too grand, but uh, somebody asked me the other day, if I just summarize in a very short way, what's my mission? And I said this and it really stuck with me that I, I'm, I feel like I'm on a mission to democratize accessibility of happiness. That to me, thinking about it as a skill and that there are these very, very simple practices. I think I put something like 37 of them in the book and each one is literally less than a minute. And there's so many others, obviously. It's not like I exhausted the, the pool. But if we treat it as a skill that we can all improve through practice, I think that means it's accessible for everybody. And to me, that is so exciting. And that is what, you know, that is what gives me meaning every day. But the, the, the difficult truth is that, yeah, we have to give it our intention. We have to choose to practice. We have to practice on days we may not feel good when we get, when we get up. But the beautiful thing is that the practices don't take a lot of time. You know, I, I include this in the book. I do this with so many audiences. I teach a five-minute happier workout. It's five minutes. And in five minutes, we practice the five core happier skills. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it, Natalie. Let's do it. Five minutes. We've got five minutes. Let's do it. Okay. Let's do it. Let's do the workout. Okay, fantastic. Okay. So the first, we're going to do kind of an abbreviated version because we're not, I can't see it. So the first part is acceptance. We're going to practice the skill of acceptance. And acceptance is very simply being where you are and acknowledging and witnessing where you are, how things are, and how you feel without judgment, without wanting it to be different, without wishing it were different. That's the skill of acceptance. And one of the most powerful ways to practice it in a short amount of time is what I call two minutes of stillness and silence. And maybe we can just do one, but it's up to you. And so it's just taking a few moments to be still and silent, just observing how you feel, observing your thoughts. And every time you find your mind judging or rushing to somewhere else, just asking yourself to come back to this moment of stillness and silence. So I don't know if you want to time us or I can. You can just take us through a minute is fine. I'm I'm on your happiness workout. I'm doing it. I'm right here with you. Okay. So let's spend a minute in stillness and silence and just practicing acceptance of how we are and how things are. Okay, so it was a little bit less than a minute, but that's our practice of acceptance of just being in this present moment. The second skill, so the second step is gratitude. 
And what I ask uh, folks to do is pause and capture in some way two or three things you are really grateful for. Now, we have to capture them because our brain is fantastic at ignoring our thoughts. But we can do it by sharing something we're grateful for with each other. That's another way to do this workout. Uh, Teams at work do this workout together. And you just turn to the person next to you and you share something that you are grateful for, however tiny or big in this moment. So we'll share it with each other, Tammy. So I'll go first. And I'll tell you that um, something I'm grateful for is that, you know, I spent most of my life in these very crazy, uh, lots of travel, very intense tech executive jobs. And for the last two years, I've been working out of a home office. And um, I still have a very hectic schedule. But what that means is when my daughter comes home from school, sometimes if I'm here, I can pop out and say hi. And it's just been this amazing gift. And today, what I'm grateful for is she came home and I could just immediately see something was wrong. And I just, you know, I made her a snack. We started, she's 13 and we hung out. And then she told me she's very sad. She's having this issue with a friend. And uh, of course, I'm so, you know, as a mom, my heart breaks, but I am so grateful that I could be here. I am so grateful that I'm able to do work in a way that allows me to be here. And in particular, I'm just very grateful for this moment today. It happened about an hour ago that I could be there for Mia um, when she was going through something really difficult. So how about you? I'm very grateful for our strong and sweet and pure-hearted engineer, Jeff Mack, who's here with me and helps me with these podcasts. And I happen to have met Jeff, and so I, I love that I actually know the person you're talking about. Okay, so that's the second skill of gratitude, again, capturing in some way by saying to someone or writing down a few things you're grateful for. The third step, the third skill is what I call intentional kindness. And we talk about kindness as random acts of kindness often. And um, I'm actually asking us to be more intentional about practicing kindness every day. And so as part of this workout, uh, the folks have a choice. You either can do something kind um, that doesn't take a lot of time, or if you can do it at that moment, you can, you, you make a plan for how you will do something kind later in the day. And one of the easiest kind things to do is to um, think of someone in your life who you appreciate or you want to check in with and do it. You can do it by text or email or my voice. And I have this opportunity. You just mentioned Jeff. Jeff was kind enough and amazing enough to work with me on my audiobooks. And what my act of kindness, Jeff, is to tell you, um, I was going to email you this, but since you're listening, I'll tell you this is my act of kindness. I was in a coffee shop today and the owner is a friend and she has a galley of my book. And there was a woman there who saw me on the cover, on the back cover and said, oh my God, you're the author. And I said, yes. And I went over and chatted with her and she started crying because she read a part of the book that was about being okay with not okay. And she said, you know, I have trouble with my eyes. Do you think you will do an audio book at some point? And I was so excited to tell her that we already recorded the audio book. So, Jeff, I'm sharing this with you as my act of kindness because I know how hard you worked on it, and I know this will be meaningful for you. All right. So an intentional act of kindness. This is something I'm going to do kindly towards someone else, but I can't do it right now, Natalie, because we're in the middle of our broadcast. That's okay. So you make a plan. Yeah. Okay. I've made a plan. I, I can imagine a conversation awesome. I'm going to have with someone. Yep. Fantastic. The fourth skill is what I call the bigger why, and that is connecting to a sense of meaning, connecting to something that gives you a sense of meaning. And this is one of my favorite ways to practice it. You glance at your to-do list. We all have our to-do list. Sometimes we write them down. Maybe it's on your calendar or your computer. You glance at your to-do list and you find, you look at one or two to-dos and you ask yourself, how does this help someone else? Because our, our sense of meaning in life comes from when we do something that, you know, we can be good at that contributes to someone other than ourselves. And so this is one of my favorite ways to practice it as part of the workout. So I will tell you, I'm just looking at uh, the first thing on my to-do list, and it says, create slides for the talk in Vegas on 4-13. So on the 13th of April, I have to do, I'm giving a talk. It's a uh, a thousand customer service agents, actually, and I have to send in my presentation. And to be honest with you, I've actually been putting it off because I, I don't love creating PowerPoint presentations. But the practice of the bigger why is 
okay, so this is the to-do to create slides. Who does this help? Well, my talk and these slides make my talk better, so it'll help uh, all these people who come to my talk learn about these skills, these happier skills that we are talking about, and hopefully experience a little bit more joy and less stress in their lives. And so I, this to-do now for me has a little bit of meaning, and it's a reminder of why I'm doing this to-do. Okay, the last step of the workout. The last step of the workout is self-care. And uh, the, the way that I would ask folks to do it as part of these five minutes is say something kind, supportive, or compassionate to yourself. We don't do this often. We are fantastic at being harsh and um, towards ourselves. And we're not great. All, most of us are not very self-compassionate. And so as the last step of the workout, say something that is supportive, kind, or compassionate to yourself as a way to practice self-care. That is a gosh darn good workout, Natalie. That's a lot. Five minutes. And it took a little bit longer, but it's it, when you do it on your own. So by the way, it took us exactly five and a half minutes, and I was talking a lot. Okay. Now, there's something else I wanted to talk to you about. You mentioned mm. that in your own life, early on, based on your own upbringing and personality bent, you had this idea that you would find happiness through achievement. And I think a lot of people mm. feel that way. If they... Mm -hmm achieve enough, earn enough, etc. How were you able to shift that? Yeah, it's a great question. And the first thing I want to say, and people ask me this often when I talk about the shift is they say, Oh, but you're still really ambitious. You still are working really hard. You still are trying to achieve all these things. What do you mean? And so it's not that achievement is bad. Working hard towards something that is meaningful to you is actually one of the most essential uh, components of living a happier life. Um, this is why a sense of meaning is one of the five skills. So working hard towards achieving something meaningful, it's absolutely, I'm not, it's, there's, it's fantastic. The difference is that I no longer hang my happiness on the outcome of these things I'm working towards because it is this internal practice. And that's the difference. It's not that I don't achieve things. I have lots of things I'm trying to achieve. I'm trying to reach millions of people. It's my message and my teachings to change their lives and improve their lives. That's a pretty ambitious goal, but it's that I am okay during the steps to get there. And I derive joy and meaning as I'm working towards my goal, I'm not waiting to feel happy later. And my happiness uh, won't be destroyed. My well-being won't be destroyed when I don't reach a certain goal. And that's the thing is that was the huge discovery for me. I used to think that if I paused to appreciate little things, that would distract me from working hard, that that would you know, make me complacent, that I won't work as much if I am grateful for things or I appreciate things or I feel joy. It's exactly the opposite, uh, and research supports this, that when we're celebrating the little things, the little steps on the way to our goals, when we're grateful for things, when we practice kindness and a sense of meaning, our resilience increases, our ability to get through challenges increases. And so that's the shift. It's not that I no longer want to achieve things or I'm asking people to not think of achieving things. It's that we don't hang our well-being and our lasting happiness and the outcomes of our achievements and that along the way we practice these skills so that we can fuel ourselves with the joy and the kindness and the human connection and a sense of meaning. Now, one of the things I read in your blog, Natalie, was that you started painting not that long ago mm -hmm. and that this mm -hmm. was very interesting for you because you discovered that in taking time away from your more quote-unquote productive work and spending mm -hmm. time doing something that you enjoyed painting, that it actually had a net result of you being even more creative and in some ways leveraging your productivity in an interesting way by spending time mm -hmm. doing mm -hmm. something that seemed unproductive. I thought that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. It was very surprising to me. Nobody was more surprised than I was. And I'll tell you, um, so I've wanted to paint my whole life and I've always loved art. I grew up with it, but I never allowed myself to do it because you said I thought it would be 
how does this fit into my life and my career, you know, to luxury, it's an indulgence. I can't waste time on it. And as I began this journey of, you know, again, learning to live more fully and genuinely happier, I allowed myself to do it. And, you know, the first thing that happened is just, there's just so much more joy in my life because I enjoyed it so much. But then, as you said, what shocked me, and I'm using that word on purpose, was how much more productive I was, even though I now was actually spending fewer hours working because I was taking a couple hours to paint. And this blew my mind. And not only was I more productive, I had all this creativity in my work. I created, I connect this happier at work program that I talked about that we've piloted with several companies and we're now going to be rolling it rolling it out. I don't think I would have come up with the way that I've done it. And it's very interesting and unique if I hadn't allowed myself to paint and really open up and, uh, you know, research supports this. And this is what I always share because I, 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 I meet so many people who are afraid to take time to rest or they're afraid to take time to do something that just for the joy that because they feel like they have so much productive in quotation marks that stuff they have to do. But research shows that we are actually most productive when we alternate times of focused hard work with times of what researchers call constructive rest. And for me, painting is constructive rest. I am resting the thinking, emailing, talking part of my brain, and I'm moving from a very different part of myself. And there's a lot of research that shows just how beneficial that is. And by the way, you don't have to paint. You just have to do something that feels restful. For some people, it's going for a run or reading or walking or gardening. But research shows that when we alternate periods of really hard, intense work with periods of constructive rest, we increase our productivity and our creativity. And that is because there's this part of our brain that's called the DMN network. It's a part of the brain that is responsible for kind of making unexpected connections, for organizing information that we've taken in, for kind of filtering through it. Well, the thing is, it only is active when the thinking, the, the rational, the frontal cortex part is resting. That's why we often literally come up with ideas in the shower, because when we focus on solving a problem or doing things, then we take a shower, we take a break. We're not really focused on activities in the shower. It's kind of autopilot. That part of the brain gets to come online and make all these unexpected connections. And for me, that's what painting has done. And this is why uh, painting for me is a type of self-care. And this is why I made self-care one of the happier skills is, I, again, I used to think that it would make me a lazy sloth and it's exploded my productivity and creativity and uh, I hear this from people experiencing this all the time. And again, the way I got myself there was by accident. I didn't know that painting would make me so much more productive, but then I looked at the research and it supports it. And it's been this enormous gift of just pure joy, but also increased productivity and creativity in my life, which is why I share it with others. Now, I want to talk for a moment, Natalie, to that person who might be listening to us, who for whatever reason, at this point in their life, is really having a hard time. And, you know, mm. what, I, what I noticed in your five skills and the workout we did was that you started with acceptance. And mm. I really appreciated that because I thought no matter what anyone's feeling right now, we can start there. But so I want to talk to that person who says, you know, I feel inspired by what Natalie's saying, but the truth is I'm just going through a really hard time right now. And it's a little hard mm -hmm. for me. It's a little hard for me to connect even with these yeah. skills. Like, I just don't quite have it in me. Maybe I feel mm -hmm. a little super gray or depressed. Mm -hmm. Mm. And I, the first thing, you know, this is a podcast that so people can't see my face, but the first thing that I like, I just feel like, as you're saying that I feel so much empathy because I've been there. I think we've all been there in that really dark place. And it's, it's so hard. And so this, this is why acceptance is the first thing, because I'll tell you that until I learned to give myself permission to sometimes just feel crappy or sad or hopeless until I actually gave myself permission and, and learned that it was okay to not be okay. That first step was always missing. And that makes it impossible to connect to any of the other skills. And in fact, uh, I talk about this as the missing ingredient of happiness. 
the idea that it's okay to feel not okay. So the first thing I would say to that person, I shared this when I was doing my kindness for Jeff, this woman, it just happened to me this morning. I ran into this woman in a coffee shop and she was started crying when I said, to, when she said, I'm going through a hard time. And I said, I understand. And I didn't tell her to cheer up and I didn't tell her it'll get better. And I think that's very, very hard uh, when you hear that someone is in pain, whether they're a stranger or a loved one, to not try to fix it or get them to move through it faster. But that is actually, I think, the first step. So the first thing I would say is that's okay. That is how you feel. And that's why I think acceptance is so essential and understanding that this is part of life and you're not doing anything wrong. You're not failing at life. You're not doing anything wrong because you may feel so down right now. And I think that in and of itself, to be honest with you, and I share this in my book and in, in many ways, that was huge for me when I was able, for the first time in my life, there's actually, I know exactly when it happened. I, I was very lucky to be introduced to a teacher who's since become my, my spiritual teacher, my teacher. Uh, I didn't know that's who she would be, but uh, after a few times that I met with her, I kind of got up enough either courage or desperation to tell her that I felt really hopeless. And it's a very scary thing to say. And as soon as I said it, she didn't, the reaction she had, she didn't tell me to cheer up or she didn't tell me things to do. She just looked at me in this very loving, accepting way. And I felt like I got to put down this huge weight that I'd been carrying my whole life for 40 years. And so that's the first and maybe the most important thing I want to say to anyone feeling that way is that is okay. It doesn't feel good. It absolutely doesn't feel good, but you're not doing anything wrong and you're not failing at happiness. You're being a human being. And the next thing I would ask is to be self-compassionate towards yourself because I find I did this and I find so many people that I work with do this. When we feel down, so many of us actually become even harsher towards ourselves. You know, we beat ourselves up for being down. We beat ourselves up for not being able to get out of the funk or the sadness. And that's very counterproductive. And so what I ask is, can you talk to yourself? Can you treat yourself in this, in this place where you are the way you would treat a good friend? So if a good friend came to you and they told you they're very sad or they're feeling down, what would you say to them? I don't think you'd say to them, oh, you're, you suck at life. Okay. You're doing it wrong. But that's often what we say to ourselves when we feel like we feel sad or down or the way we don't think we're supposed to. And so what I ask and what I invite folks like that to do is the thing that I do when I feel down or sad and the, the thing that really changed my life around is first give yourself permission to not have to change right away, just accept it. And then can you be self-compassionate towards yourself? Uh, it's a, again, it's a skill. It's, I am asking for a, a little bit of effort, but I find that those two things really open up the opportunity for actually feeling better. And when it comes to the core skills of happiness now, what's the hardest for you, Natalie? Where's the place where you're like, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, that's the place where it's still, I'm really kind of It's a great question. On the you know what it curve. is? It's, um, it's a, it, I'm going to, uh, in the skill of kindness, I talk about, uh, I actually talk about something I call advanced kindness, and that is compassion. And that is compassion towards difficult people, compassion towards people who have hurt you or who are behaving in a bad way or maybe hurting people you love or causes you love. Um, that's very hard. That's, I call it advanced kindness in my book. Um, I think it's, it's very hard for me to do. It's very hard for me to practice compassion, which is a part of kindness, towards people who are wronging me or being angry at me or in a smaller big ways or people who I feel are doing bad things to people I love. It's very, very hard. Um, I struggle with that. I talk about my struggle in the book and I'll make it, you know, I'll be even more open about it. You know, I write in the book about how, you know, as I was getting to a very, very dark place in my life a few years ago, um, so was my relationship with my husband. Avi and I have been together for 20 years. We got, uh, we met in college, so we're this old married couple. And, you know, our inner darkness affects everything. And, you know, I, we, I didn't know whether our marriage was going to make it. Um, he used to be my best friend. We had hardly talked for years at that point. And 
I was very hopeless about our relationship. And uh, one of the things my teacher asked me to do is she said, can you be compassionate? Can you be compassionate towards Avi? Even though I had this very long list of ways he hurt me and very long things of he had done wrong and I done wrong. And I was trying to do this math of, okay, who did what wrong more often? And that person should go first. And I write about this in the book that one of the hardest things I've ever done was to be kind towards Avi first before I felt like, in quote marks, you know, he deserved it. He trying to be compassionate towards someone who I felt, you know, it hurt me. And I can honestly tell you that it saved our marriage. And not only because I did it, because when I did it, he did it. And we would just start doing this with each other. And when people ask us, how did you guys save your relationship? We say it with compassion. But it's, it was very hard to do. I fought it with all of me. And it continues to be a difficult skill to practice when I encounter people who hurt me in some way or people out in the world who are doing things I disagree with. But that's, that's my hardest one. What it's helps you do it? Practice. What helps you do it? What enabled you to do it with your husband? Uh, at the, so what, what enabled me to do it with my husband, I'll tell you honestly, uh, was really my teacher and something she said to me. She said, um, I'm not asking you to do it for him. I'm asking you to do it for yourself. And that stuck with me. And it's something I still think about all the time that when we practice kindness and compassion towards others, whether it's people we love or people who are very difficult or painful or hurtful, we experience hundred percent of the emotions that we give to others. So when we practice feeling compassionate towards someone else, and what is compassion? Compassion is recognizing our common imperfections and struggles. And it's not about excusing the other person's behavior, but it's about allowing for the possibility that they're not an evil human being who is intent on making your life hell, but maybe they're struggling with something. That's compassion. When we practice compassion, we feel compassion inside. When we practice kindness, we feel kindness inside. When we practice anger, we feel anger inside. And we all know how painful that is. And so what shifted me, what allowed me to open up and do it was, you know, my teacher opening my eyes to this idea that I wasn't doing it to excuse Avi's behavior that I disagreed with or to get him off the hook or even for him that I was doing it for my own well-being. And that's the reminder that I give myself when I struggle with it, that, you know, we experience 100% of the emotions that we give to others. And when we practice compassion towards someone who is difficult, I call in the book, I call this practice, I just described as a lens of compassion. When you encounter a person who is being difficult or rude, even someone who's cutting you off on the road, like we know how angry we get. Can you practice the lens of compassion? Can you think, make up a story, it doesn't have to be true, of what the person might be struggling with that could be causing them to act that way. You'll never know if the story is true if it's someone you don't know, but you're, by practicing compassion, you're experiencing compassion and kindness, and it increases your patience, and it allows you to not be overcome with anger that will ruin your entire well-being. And so that's what really shifted my thinking. And that's the reminder I give to myself uh, when I struggle is that I experience 100% of the emotions that I give to others. And so if I choose anger, I feel anger and I'm actually ruining my own well-being. That's a powerful teaching, Natalie. Thank you. Mm. Now, it's interesting that you started your educational training company, Happier, after you had a certain amount of discovery around the power Mm. of gratitude. But then you went through a pretty difficult journey, having Mm. already started a company called Happier. Pretty difficult, Mm -hmm. pretty dark. And you discovered Mm -hmm. lots of things that have led you to redefine happiness and write this new book, Mm. Happier Now. And I'm curious if at any point did you think, God, I started a company called Happier this is terrible. What did I get myself into? Now I have to live up to this. I have to wear a happy mask of some kind. Yep. Yep. Uh, Absolutely. And I'll tell you, I actually, um, you know, I call this book a coming out. It is a coming out for me. I share the story in it. I share my journey. I share how as a CEO of Happier, I was on the front page of the tech section of the New York Times at one point. They wrote this huge article about us. It was an enormous success by every 
startup story. And I share that I was in the darkest time of my life. I was literally, Tammy, hardly functioning as a human being. I was not functioning as a CEO. I was hardly functioning as a mom. I talked about my marriage. It was the darkest, most hopeless time. And the fact that I felt like I couldn't tell anyone because, oh my God, does that make me a fraud? I'm supposed to be, you know, teaching people about happiness and look at me. That made it even harder. It was excruciating because I didn't feel like I could tell anyone this reality because I was still in that place where, yes, I was practicing gratitude, but I believe that I had to appear like a perfect performer of everything I was teaching. I didn't actually allow myself to be a human being. I had not yet embraced my imperfections. I had not yet given myself permission to not be okay. It was excruciating. It was, I I have no words. I actually, uh, part of what I do in my talks now to really walk the walk of coming out about this is I often, when I share the story of Happier, I put up the slide of the front page of the New York Times tech section where there's me, there's a huge photo of me. I'm sitting on the hood of a little orange Mini Cooper that was branded happier that we, you know, that I had, I had this little car, we branded it happier. And I say, don't I look so happy? Because I do. And people are like, yeah. And I say, what would you say if I told you this was the most hopeless, darkest day of my life? Because it was. Tammy, I'm not sure I came home the day of that photo shoot. I don't know where I was. I would have these blackouts. I was just at the bottom of the barrel. I was so hopeless. And I, I just felt I couldn't share this with anyone because I thought, wow, as a CEO of Happier, my job is to inspire and uplift. And I'll tell you something that has been incredible. As I started going on this second part of my journey and learning that happiness is not about being perfect, it's not about um, uh, being always positive. It's really about embracing my imperfect humanity and sharing that openly with the world, I made a commitment. We send this weekly email out to anyone who subscribes on happier.com. And it's a couple hundred thousand people at this point. I made a commitment that I was going to start writing more honest and personal emails. And so I slowly, I took baby steps at first, started to share a little bit of my struggle with people. And oh my God, Tammy, what I got back, I write this in the book, I can only describe as love. I don't mean romantic love. I don't mean that kind of love, but it's just this outpouring from all these people saying, thank you so much for sharing this. You give me hope. I feel uplifted because you shared your struggle. Because if a CEO of a company called Happier struggles, well, that gives me hope that I'm not failing at life because I'm struggling, that maybe that's okay. And what I have discovered, it's this gift that this you know, my work is giving me and being able to share this is that I used to think that my job was to uplift people. And I thought to uplift people, you know, you have to be inspiring and positive. But what I've learned is we can uplift each other just by being honest. My honesty, my coming out, my sharing my struggles through my journey. And now I still encounter struggles, big or small. That is uplifting to people. I have never considered that before. And that's been the huge realization. And so I have this gift of, you know, so many people who've been able to give me that feedback. But it was the scariest thing, being at that hopeless place and feeling like I couldn't tell anyone because I would think I was a fraud. And then to begin to share little by little. But every time I do, the more I do it, every time I discover nobody runs away from me. No one says you're such a fraud. No one says, oh, my God, you're such a failure. It's the opposite. We em- People embrace me. Sometimes physically they hug me and they start sharing a little bit of themselves. They feel uplifted. And that is, if you ask me, that is why I share my journey in this book is to give hope. I feel like it gives hope to other people who are struggling uh, to both yes, it's possible to get through, but also that it's okay, and it's okay to share our struggles. Okay, and now I'm going to say something I almost never say. Natalie, you ready? We can uplift each other just by being honest. That was your quote. We can uplift each other just by being honest. And now I'm going to say that I think that sounds true. Okay, I've been speaking with Natalie (laughs) Kogan. She's the author of the book, Happier Now, How to Stop Chasing Perfection and Embrace Everyday Moments, Even 
the difficult ones. And, you know, Natalie, we didn't talk that much about everyday moments, but I think that's a beautiful place to end our conversation. You talked about how your gratitude practice tuned you in Mm. to these absolutely little things. Tell me the kinds of everyday moments that really bring you a lot of happiness. Oh, what a great place to end. Um, I'll share a few. My, um, I love uh, the morning light. There's something about the morning light that is so hopeful to me. So I try to always get out for a walk in the morning. And even if I can't take a walk, I peek outside because I just, I love the morning light, even when the sun is not out. So that's one of my favorite everyday moments. Um, I love uh, every day uh, before my daughter goes to sleep. She's 13, but my husband and I still go in and kiss her. And she still lets us. And I find so much joy just in that moment of the familiarity of saying night babes and giving her a kiss. It's like a joyful explosion every time. Uh, I love, and I, this is one of my favorite little rituals. uh, When I make coffee or tea, I don't multitask. I sometimes it's 30 seconds. It's a minute, but it's something, it's one of the ways I began practicing gratitude, but now I just, I love just taking that little time and like the coffee is brewing or I'm drinking my tea. I have a favorite cup for tea and I have a favorite cup for coffee. And my family knows you do not interchange the two. And I love that little experience of going to get, if I'm having coffee, I'm getting my favorite coffee cup and I made my coffee and I'm just taking a few sips and I'm just there in that moment, enjoying it. And those are just some of my little highlights of my day. They're absolutely ordinary moments. And as I always say, what makes the moments in our lives extraordinary is our honoring them with our full presence and attention. Natalie Kogan, thank you so much for being a guest here on Insights at the Edge and for your new book, Happier Now, How to Stop Chasing Perfection and Embrace Everyday Moments, Even the Difficult Ones. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been amazing. Soundstrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.